Section 7 of My Life in the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Kennelly. My Life in the South by Jacob Stroyer. Chapter 2, Part 4. Mr. Black, the Slave Hunter. There was a white man in Richland County, South Carolina, named Mr. Black, who made his living by hunting runaway slaves. I knew him as well as I did one of my fellow Negroes on Colonel Singleton's plantation. He was of dark complexion, short stature, spare built, with long, jet-black, coarse hair. He bore the description of what some would call a good man, but he was quite the reverse. He was one of the most heartless men I have ever seen. Mr. Black was a very successful hunter, although sometimes all of his bloodhounds were killed by runaway slaves, and he barely escaped with his fife. He used to ride a small bay mare in hunting, which was the only horse he owned. She was thin, raw-boned creature, and looked as though she could hardly walk, but knew the business about as well as her master. And in such troubles as above stated, she used to carry him pretty fast out of danger. Mr. Black caught several runaway slaves belonging to Colonel Singleton. I have known him to chase runaway slaves out of the forest right through the Colonel's plantation, through a crowd of other Negroes, and his dogs would never mistake any among the crowd for the ones they were after. When these hound dogs chased the runaways through the farms in that way, many of them were killed and buried in the cotton or cornfields by some among the crowd of Negroes through which they passed. In general, the slaves hated bloodhounds, and would kill them any time they got a chance, but especially on such occasions as above stated, to keep them from capturing runaways. Once, eight slaves ran away from Colonel Singleton's plantation, and Mr. Black, with twenty-five hound dogs, was hired to hunt them up. The dogs struck trail of the runaways late one afternoon, and chased them all that night, during which time they got scattered. Next morning, three of the runaways were chased through a crowd of their fellow Negroes, who were working in the cotton field. While chasing the runaways, some among the crowd killed six of the dogs, including the two leading ones, and buried them in the cotton fields, or rows, as we used to call them. Mr. Black, the hunter, though a mile or more off, knew that something had happened from the irregular barking of the other dogs, and also because he did not hear the yelling of the two leading dogs. So he blew his horn, called the rest of his dogs, and gave up the chase until he had replaced his leading dogs by others, which he always had on hand at home. Slave hunters generally had one or two among the pack of hound dogs, called trailers or leaders, which the others, fifty or more, were trained to follow. So if anything happened to the leaders while on chase, the rest would become confused and could not follow the runaway. But if the leaders were hurt or killed after the runaways were captured, the rest would surround and guard them until the hunter reached them, as he was always a mile or more behind. After the leading dogs had been replaced, Mr. Black resumed the chase and caught some of the runaways, but the rest came home themselves. The last runaway slave Mr. Black was hired to hunt belonged to Colonel M. R. Singleton, and was named Dick, but instead of Dick, he caught a slave belonging to a man in Sumterville County who had been in the woods seven years. This runaway slave had another name at home, but while in the woods had assumed the name of Champion for his success in keeping slave hunters from capturing him up to that time. 
Mr. Black, the hunter, chased Dick and Champion two days and nights. On the morning before the capture of the latter, they swam across the Watery River. After they got across, they were separated. The dogs followed Champion and ran him down that morning about eleven o'clock. Champion had a gun and a pistol. As the first dog ran up and opened his mouth to take hold of him, he discharged the contents of the pistol in his mouth and killed him instantly. The rest of the dogs did not take hold of him, but surrounded him and held him at bay until the hunter reached the spot. When Mr. Black rode up within gunshot, Champion aimed at him with a loaded double-barrel gun, but the caps of both barrels snapped from being wet by running through the bushes. Mr. Black had a gun and a pistol, too. He attempted to shoot the Negro, but William Turner, Colonel Singleton's overseer, who hired Mr. Black to hunt Dick, the runaway from the Colonel's plantation, would not let him do it. Mr. Black then attempted to strike Champion with the breech of his gun, but Champion kicked him down, and as he drew his knife to stab Mr. Black, Mr. Turner, the overseer, struck him on the back of his head with the butt of a loaded whip. This stunned him for a few moments, and by the time he had regained his senses, they had handcuffed him. After the Negro had been handcuffed, Mr. Black wanted to abuse him, because he had killed the dog and attempted to shoot him, but Mr. Turner, the overseer, would not let him. Champion was taken to Colonel Singleton's plantation, locked up in the dungeon under the overseer's house, and his master was notified of his capture. He was a mulatto Negro, and his master, who was his father, sent for him at Colonel Singleton's plantation. But I never learned whether Mr. Black, the hunter, was ever paid for capturing him. Dick, the runaway Negro from Colonel Singleton's place, came home himself sometime after Champion, his companion, had been captured. Mr. Black, the slave hunter, was very poor and had a large family. He had a wife with eight or ten helpless children, whom I knew as well as I did my fellow Negroes on the Colonel's plantation. But as cruel as Mr. Black was to runaway slaves, his family was almost wholly supported by Negroes. I have known, in some cases, that they stole from their masters to help this family. The Negroes were so kind to Mr. Black's family that his wife turned against him for his cruelty to runaway slaves. I have stated that some of the masters and overseers hired the hunters on condition that they would capture and return the runaway slaves, unbruised and untorn by their dogs, while others, in a mad fit of passion, would say to them, I want you to bring my runaway nigger home, dead or alive. All of the slave hunters used to practice cruelty upon the runaway slaves, more especially upon those whose masters would say to hunters, bring them dead or alive. But among all the slave hunters in the part of South Carolina where the author of this work lived, Mr. Black was the most cruel. It was rumored that many of the runaway slaves that were never heard of afterward were captured and killed in the woods by Mr. Black, but no special clue to this could be found. Finally, Mr. Black was hired to capture a runaway slave in Barnwell County, South Carolina. This slave was with another, who was thought well of by his master, but hated by the overseer. In the chase, the two runaways separated, and the dogs followed the second instead of the one whom Mr. Black had been hired to hunt. Mr. Black had another hunter with him by the name of Motley. The Negro killed several of the dogs and gave Mr. Black and Motley a hard fight. After the Negro had been captured, they killed him, cut him up, 
and gave his remains to the living dogs. The companion of the murdered slave was not caught. A few days after the chase, while wandering around in the wood in a somewhat excited state, he came to a spot where the bushes and leaves seemed to have been in a stirred-up condition, as though there had been tussling by two parties. On looking around in this disordered spot, he found pieces of clothing here and there in rags, looking just like the suit worn by his companion, who was then a victim of a most cruel death from the hands of the hunters. On closer examination, he saw spots of blood here and there upon the leaves, which awakened his suspicion. On looking a little away from this spot, he saw some leaves which looked as though they had been moved by hands and put there, and on removing the leaves, he found that the earth had been freshly dug and filled in again. Digging down in the spot, he soon discovered pieces of the person of a dead man whom he could not identify, but was satisfied that it was the remains of his companion from whom he had been compelled to separate a few days before. This sight frightened the runaway negro so that he left the woods, went home to his master, and told the story. But as the negro's word was not to be taken against a white man's in those days of slavery, no special notice was taken of what he had said. Still, some of the white people were secretly watching Mr. Black, the slave hunter, as he had been before suspected of killing runaway slaves in the woods. The master of the murdered negro was still ignorant of his death. He was in hopes that his slave would return. But finding that his slave did not return as expected, the master became uneasy and offered a reward to anyone who could give a clue of his negro. In the meantime, he discharged the overseer who had been the cause of his slave running away. And he also kept the overseer's salary of $400, which was the annual pay for overseeing his plantation. Mr. Black's house was in Richland County, and as he was the last who had hunted runaway slaves in Barnwell County before the murder, suspicion rested on him. Still no one said anything to him, but he was very closely watched by men of his own county, whose interest was not in the hatefulness of the crime committed, but rather in the reward offered by the master to any who could give information of his runaway slave. Sometime after the case had occurred, Another white man of Richland County became quite a friend of Mr. Black, the slave hunter. This apparent friendship soon led Mr. Black to tell the secret which speedily brought him to trial. While he and his pretended friend were on a drinking spree in the midst of the merriment, of course the conversation was how to control Negroes, as that was the principal topic of the poor white men's South in the days of slavery. In the conversation, this friend spoke of several plans which he said, if properly carried out, quote, would keep a nigger in his place, end quote. After the friend had said so much to Mr. Black, the slave hunter, the latter felt he could tell his secret without endangering himself. So he answered, quote, the way to show a nigger that would resist a white man his place is to put him among the missing. Not long since, I went to Barnwell County to hunt a runaway nigger, and my dog struck trail of another instead of the one I wanted to capture. After quite a long chase, my dogs ran him down, and before I reached him, he killed several of them, and gave me a hard fight when I got to him. Motley and I were together. I shot him down, and Motley and I cut him up and gave the pieces to the remainder of my dogs. That is the way I put a nigger in his place." Quote. After the secret had been revealed, Mr. Black's friend excused himself, and the former saw him no more until he appeared as a witness against him. 
the companion of the murdered negro was summoned to carry the investigating party including the murderer to the spot where his companion had been buried mr black was tried and found to be guilty after sentence had been passed he confessed the commission of that crime and also told that he had killed several runaway negroes previously in his own county so mr black and motley his companion were both hanged in barnwell county south carolina the system of slavery outlived mr black the slave hunter just six years manning brown and aunt betty a man by the name of manning brown was nursed by an old colored woman he called mama betty she was naturally good-natured and a devout christian and mr brown gained many of her good qualities when he was under her entire control at which time he was said to be a boy of very fine sense of feeling and quite promising but when approaching manhood mr brown fell among a class of other white men who in the days of slavery were unbridled in their habits with this class of men he began to drink and step by step in this rapid stride he soon became a confirmed drunkard this habit so overcoated the good influence he had gained from the colored woman that it rendered him dangerous not only to his enemies but also to his friends manny brown was feared by most of the other white men in richland county south carolina and strange to say although he was dangerous to white men yet he never lost the respect he had for colored people in his boyhood days he ate drank and slept among colored people after he was a grown man and in many cases when other white men who were called patrols caught colored people away from home without tickets and were about to whip them mr brown would ride up and say the first man who raises a whip at one of those negroes i will blow his brains out knowing that he would shoot a man as quick as he would a bird even if ten patrols were together when mr brown made such threats they never would attempt to whip the negroes mr brown owned a plantation with forty slaves on it his good treatment of them enabled him to get more work out of them than most owners got out of their slaves his slaves thought so much of their massa manning as they used to call him that they did everything in their power to please him but while he was so good to colored people he was dangerous to many of the white people and feared by them a man by the name of peter gaffney fought a duel with his brother-in-law whose name was dr ray the former who was quite a marksman was killed by the latter who was considered a very poor one this led many who were in favor of mr gaffney to feel that there had been foul play by dr ray the contestant mr brown who acted as a second for mr gaffney in the fight felt the loss of his old friend very deeply a short time after this he sent a challenge to dr ray stating quote, you may either meet me at a certain time on the spot where you killed p t gaffney for a duel or i will shoot you on first sight whenever i meet you yours m brown End quote. but dr ray refused in the face of the threat to accept the challenge knowing the disposition of mr brown the people in that county were inflamed with excitement because the doctor was liable at any moment while riding in the road to be killed in fear of meeting mr brown the doctor gave up visiting the most of his sick patients and almost wholly confined himself to his large plantation at the same time mr brown was closely watched by his friends to keep him from waylaying the doctor a short time after this threat mr brown commenced to drink harder than ever 
so that at times he did not know his own family. But the providence of God was slowly leading Mr. Brown through the unknown past to a sudden change of life, as we shall soon see. Mr. Brown's family consisted of a wife, one child, and Aunt Betty, the old colored woman who had brought him up. She was the only mother he knew, or his own mother had died when he was an infant, and her dying request had been that Mama Betty, the old woman, should bring up this boy, who was an only child. And when Mr. Brown got married, he took Aunt Betty into his family and told her she need not do any work, only what she chose to do, and that he would take care of her the balance of her days. And Mrs. Brown regarded Aunt Betty more as a mother-in-law than as a negress servant. Sometimes when Mr. Brown would not listen to his wife, he would to his mama Betty, when he was sober enough to know her. One afternoon, while Mr. Brown was in one of those drunken fits, he went into his bedroom and lay down across the bed, talking to himself. His wife went in to speak to him, but as she entered, he jumped up and got his loaded double-barreled gun and threatened to shoot her. Frightened at this, she ran out of the room and screamed, saying, Oh, my God, Mama Betty, please go in and speak to your Massa Manning, for he threatened to shoot me. With that old familiar confidence in one who had often listened to her advice, Aunt Betty went into the house and to the room where she found Mr. Brown lying across the bed with the gun by his side. On entering the room, as she was advancing toward the bed, she said, Massa Manning, what is the matter with you? You naughty boy, what is the matter? On saying these words, before she had reached the bed, Mr. Brown rose, with gun in hand, and discharged the contents of both barrels at the old woman. She dropped instantly to the floor. Mr. Brown lay across the bed as before, with a gun by his side, talking to himself, and soon dropped to sleep. Mrs. Brown fainted away several times under the excitement. Aunt Betty lived about an hour. Soon after she had been shot, she wanted to see Mr. Brown, but when told that she could not, she said, Oh, my Lord, I wanted to see my child before I die, and I know that he would want to see his Mama Betty, too, before she leaves him. During the time she lived, she prayed for Mr. Brown and requested that he would change his course of life, become a Christian, and meet her in heaven. After singing one of her familiar hymns, Aunt Betty said to someone who stood by her bedside, I want you to tell Massa Manning that he must not feel bad for what he did to me, because I know that if he was in his right mind, he would not hurt me any more than he would himself. Tell him that. Tell him that I have prayed to the Lord for him, that he may be a good boy, and I want him to promise that he will be a Christian and meet me in heaven. With these words, Aunt Betty became speechless, dying a few moments afterwards. The doctor was sent for, but had to come from such a distance that she died before he reached there. When Mr. Brown awoke from his drunken state in the night and learned the sad news of Aunt Betty's death, of which he had been the cause, he clasped his hands and cried out, What? Is it possible that my mama Betty, the only mother I ever knew, was killed by my hands? He ran into the room where the corpse was and clasped the remains of the old negress in his arms and cried, Mama Betty, Mama Betty, please speak to me as you used to. But that voice was hushed in death. The doctor, overseer, and others tried to quiet him, but they could not. That night, Mr. Brown took the train to Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, 
and gave himself up to the law the next day. He was told that it was all right, that the old negress was his slave. But Mr. Brown was dissatisfied. He came back home and invited all the white neighbors and slaves to Aunt Betty's funeral, in which he and his family took part. After the excitement was over, the message of Aunt Betty was delivered to Mr. Brown. He was told that her last request had been that he would meet her in heaven. He answered, I will. Mr. Brown then and there took an oath that he would drink no more strong drinks. He then disposed of his slaves, but how I did not learn. Soon after this, he was converted and became one of the ablest preachers in Richland County, South Carolina. Mr. Brown's conversion freed Dr. Ray from his threat. The doctor was so glad of this that he paid quite a large sum towards Mr. Brown's salary for preaching. End of Section 7 Recording by Kevin Kenley, Aldous Mboke, Sonora, Mexico